Hello and welcome to the third instalment of The Election Beat, the general election media podcast from the drum. On today's show, we'll be discussing what the parties can do to gain the upper hand with just a week remaining until the nation goes to the polls. Will Ed Miliband's interview with self-styled revolutionary Russell Brand go down as a campaign masterstroke or a PR disaster? And can the Conservatives continue to preach that they're the Treasury's safest pair of hands as official figures show UK economic growth has slowed down? I'm Cameron Clark, and here with me at Jungle Studios to debate those issues and more are the ex-Fleet Street news editor and former Labour advisor Chris Boffey, the Tories' 2005 campaign ad man and London advertising CEO Michael Mashinsky, former House of Commons advisor Ryan Wayne, now of TVWA, Wolf Olin's creative director Chris Moody, and making her first election beat appearance, Jane Wilson, the former Chartered Institute of Public Relations chief exec, now Managing Director of Corporate Affairs at MHP Communications. Great to have you all with us. Now, with a week to go before polling day, the Conservatives and Labour remain almost deadlocked in the polls and the SNP is consistently predicted to all but wipe out Labour in Scotland. At this stage of the campaign, is it still possible for the parties to change voters' minds or is it mainly now about urging their supporters to get to the ballot box on May the 7th? Michael, you've been there in 2005. Tell us what's the last week of the campaign really like? Well, first of all, you have to understand the polls, and I would actually take issue with the question, because um, there was a very interesting blog on Friday from a young chap from Comres, who, uh, when you look at the BBC poll of polls, they are showing, or have been showing, a slight Labour league continually. But what he did was he differentiated the internet polling which is the more frequent polling to feed the immediate news desire of the newspapers, from the telephone polling, which tends to be more accurate. And by doing that, he showed that actually there was a crossover point in January when the Conservatives took a lead over Labour that's been growing consistently all the way to April. So it went from 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7, 1.4, 2.1%, and the most recent telephone polling put the Conservatives at 4% ahead. So I, I take issue, I think that actually what you'll see is YouGov, who are the sort of masters of the polling universe when it comes to politics, will do what's called herding. In the last week before the election, you'll suddenly see a jump in the Conservative support on YouGov. I think that's a, a pretty good prediction ahead of the election. But uh, critically, in terms of answering the question, uh, there's still 20% of the electorate who say they are likely to vote are claiming they're undecideds. And the polling doesn't really take into account that because it sort of uh, pro it uh, between the parties. Uh, and when you look at those, those individuals, 93% for them, the economy is the most important factor. And also they believe by a margin of two and a half to one that the Conservatives are better at running the economy and a, a factor of almost threefold in terms of leadership quality of Cameron versus Miliband. So with the SNP doing so well in Scotland, this has allowed the Conservatives to use that as a scare to attract uh, people over uh, who were perhaps considering voting UKIP. And that's why you're seeing the UKIP vote really uh, being suppressed at the moment. So I think there's still a lot to play for, more so in this election than traditionally just a get-out-the-vote campaign, which is what you would see in the last week. OK. Ryan, do you think in the Labour camp they'll be worried about what uh, Michael's saying there about the polls and, and how things might play out in a week's time? I, th- I think they, they will in certain areas, especially in, in Scotland. But I have to agree with Michael actually on the taking issue with the polls and I think an outcome of this election will hopefully be you know, a bigger spotlight cast on the role of the polls actually and how much they dictate the media coverage. 
good example is, is Ashcross polling, which has received a lot of media attention, but it doesn't take into account name recognition, i.e. the names of local candidates. It just rings up and they, they ask people whether they're going to vote Labour, Tory, Conservative. And actually, when you delve deep into that, the local candidate's name means so much, especially with the likes of the Lib Dems. So you see the Lib Dems taking an absolute bastion in the polls. But on a local level, they have a fantastic ground war, and I think we'll see them pick up a few more seats than we might be expecting nationally, only because they'll have strong, solid local candidates. And beyond that, I think what the polls probably won't reflect either is the ongoing ground war. And the reason why we probably haven't seen many exciting things happen this election is because the air war has been incredibly dull. I think the newspapers have pretty much set out their store. They're owned by, you know, Tory-loving media barons. And so it doesn't matter what Labour do, they're always going to come out negatively. But I think some of the interesting stuff has happened at, at a local level. You know, I've seen it firsthand and just the amount of people knocking on doors for Lib Dem surprised me. My own constituency is Suffolk and the number of Labour people knocking on doors as well is, is plentiful. So I think Labour will be worried, but when they, when they go down there on a the ground level, with Scotland being the exception, I think they'll be they'll be optimistic. Okay, Chris Boffey, uh, who do you think's got the most work to do in this? Labour's got the most work to do. Uh, I think polls. Uh, well, my my feelings are based on gut isn't it, rather than polls. Although I thought I think the polls made a fool of themselves uh, in the Scottish Independent, and everyone yeah. everyone sort of jumped and got scared that uh, mm. that the Scots Nats were going to win. This has got the smell of 1992 over it. They've got a very boring, straight up and down Tory leader who uh, is okay in the major mould. Uh, and we've got Paul Miliband who's desperately trying to do everything to 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 attract voters. I mean, the, the, we'll come on to it later, but Russell Brand, for, for instance. I'm not saying it's the Sheffield-Nuremberg moment, but it's not terribly bright. Uh, so I think Labour's got, got to work hard. It's got to work hard on the margins. He's got to work hard on the, where they've got to pick up the seats at the Lim Dems. Uh, at this moment, I'd be very happy if I was David Cameron. Okay. And, and Jane, I mean, given that there are only seven days left in this election, do you think that there is still time left for the parties to make a difference, to, to command a majority, or, or is it beyond them at this stage? I think making a difference, yes. Commanding a majority, I think, is a completely different question. No, I don't think we'll go there. Um, in terms of making a difference, there are definitely seem to be people, particularly of a certain age out there, who are undecided. We did a, a sort of straw poll of colleagues in across creative agencies at Engine, and we asked a group of sort of 20-somethings, you know, who you're voting for. 80% of them said, no, we don't yet know who we're going to vote for. So th th I found that astounding. When I was mm. in, in my 20s, I knew exactly who I was going to vote for. It was in my DNA. Um, now, I think partly that is people being shy about admitting who they're going to vote for, because partly they might not want to, to say, um, but partly people still genuinely want to hear more. Uh, and Ryan's point about the, the ground war is really important. We did some analysis that really shows Labour are absolutely... Um, uh, smashing it, it, going door to door. Um, the amount of tweets online, um, uh, uh, tweets about about um, door stepping and, and canvassing um, in the street are higher. The number of people that typically tend to appear in the pictures that they're tweeting are higher. And so I think that's potentially where a difference is going to be made when people are seeing other people firsthand rather than just reading um, what they read in the media and seeing the effects of the, of the war on the air. Okay. Very interesting point about how so many people within your own sort of agency or agency business are, 
undecided about uh, about the election, particularly young people. And Chris Moody, that comes back to something that we talked about on the first podcast, mm-hmm. which is that the parties perhaps haven't done enough, the main parties at least, to distinguish themselves from one another in this campaign. Uh, since you were with us in week one, have you seen any evidence that, that that's started to change? Um, to be brutally honest, unfortunately not. And it, and it disappoints me a tremendous amount, the figures that you bring out there of, of 80% of, of those young people are undecided still just makes me kind of realise how the focus has been not on changing people's minds but on just on getting people not to vote for the other guy and I think that's a been a tremendous waste of time and the last couple of weeks we we've seen in the air wall point uh, a tremendous amount of effort almost in a in a Russell Brand type sense by the major political parties to convince people not to vote in some respects not to vote for the other guy um, and that that makes me sad that the Tories for t- today, for example, go out, um, Labour go out today with a very clear point of actually criticising the Tories with a dossier of broken promises. They're not saying this is the reason why you should vote for us. And actually, as I was arriving at work this morning, I saw a poster, and for the first time it was a poster that affected me politically. And it, it wasn't particularly for a mainstream political party. It was, um, I think it was put together by the Unite Union and a a collaboration of a bunch of people. And it was a a poster entitled, I am an immigrant. Um, And it was a very affecting piece of work. And it was something none of the mainstream parties have done. And it was very simply just a a picture of someone outlining why they were in the country and why they belonged to be here. And it was funded by crowdsourcing. It was funded by a group of people who had got together because they believed in something and wanted to convince and change people's minds. And I don't see that from the mainstream parties. Okay, well, let's have a look at at what they are doing in the last week or so of of the campaign. Um, Obviously, one of the big stories this week uh, has been the ONS figures, uh, which showed that economic growth has slowed to 0.3%. As we've discussed on this podcast over the last couple of weeks, the Conservatives have made the economy uh, and... Uh, the, you know, supposed uh, safe pair of hands with the economy, a, a big part of, of, of their strategy this campaign. Um, does this undermine their argument at all, Michael, these uh, ONS figures which show the economy slowing? Um, not, in, not in the slightest. The uh, voters' opinion about who is trusted on the economy is, takes time to form. Um, the Conservatives lost it uh, after Black uh, Wednesday and the ERM and I think the Labour Party lost it uh, as a result of the, the crash um, and have not made up that ground. Um, the only time in recent memory that um, sort of economic statistics just before an election actually impacted on the outcome was in 1970, where there was some balance of uh, payment figures that came out, which I think uh, hastened uh, Harold Wilson's departure. Uh, but I think the... the high lead that the Conservatives have on this is very strong. Uh, they've spun it to say that actually, you know, there can still be bumps along the road, which they've been saying anyway. Uh, so if anything, it's likely to dampen people's concern that, or ability to say, well, we, we you know, the, the economy is doing so well, we can afford another Labour government because, you know, things aren't always certain. We're seeing what's happening in Greece, etc. So I think, it's, you know, the, the, the strength of the conservative story about creating two million jobs in the last five years, which is more than the rest of Europe put together, is is fundamentally uh, not going to be 
impacted by this. Terrifyingly, I agree with you, but for a different reason. <laughs> uh, the ONS figures were, were poor, but they cover uh, January to April, uh, and the, the lowest fall was in the construction industry. Well, you're going to get that in, in, in winter. You're going to have less construction. Uh, and the other thing the Tories have done very well on this, they've said the job's not finished. Mm. And basically, this talks to their narrative that the job's not finished. Where the Labour Party uh, can make gains on this, I'm, I've been in the north for the last four days, and I've been up in Manchester and Liverpool, and there are two Britons. And yesterday, Whitbread announced 200 Costa coffee shops to be, to be not in the north, they're not going to open them. But all they're opening in the north is charity shops. There's mm. still, it's still rough. There are two Britons, and, and Labour has got to concentrate on its home ground and win the seats that it knows it's going to get, and then work on the margins. Uh, it's not going to win anything on, on the actual economy as such, certainly not in, uh, in, in the shires. But if it works on, this, this is not benefiting me. The economy might be getting better, but it's not benefiting me. That's the way they want to go. So they should be emphasising the divide? Absolutely. Well, because I think it's about... Uh, on that, can I just, sorry, yeah, just add on that. Yeah, and the divide, the, the picture that emphasises the divide, of course, is the Bullingdon Club picture. Yeah. The but, one that they're not allowed but, to but use. The one that uh, the Tories have bought the copyright of and not yeah. allowed to, to use anymore. Well, that's it. And, and the figures like GDP are obviously important on a, when you're looking at things on a macro scale. But I think what Labour's done successfully, especially on a ground level, is talked about how the economy is relevant to normal working people. And that is about the fact that there is wage deflation, the fact that we saw today in London there's only 43 houses which are considered profitable. And I just think the London media, the Westminster public, gets very carried away with GDP, gets very excited about it. But actually it means nothing to normal working people. And as much as we have you know, a load of non-voters, these guys are the people who determine decide elections. I think that's where the, the Labour Party well, should I, I think there's a, a figure which actually makes sense of all this, which is that um, when asked, do you think the country's going in the right direction, the response is 46% yes and 34% no. So what that tells us is we, 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 we're not in a change election, which makes it very difficult for Labour to say, you know, they kick these guys out, they're not doing a good job. But when you ask the question of do you feel that you've do you feel the economic recovery? Most people, over 50%, say no. Well, actually, the, the stats are even more depressing. The populist uh, survey last week showed that the highest positive sentiment towards the country's recovering, and I'm seeing it in my area, was 19%, and that was in London. In the northwest of England, it was 10%. So I, I think that's where, you know, figures like this, I don't think, do matter, uh, um, because people, people relate it to my life and my own experience, and I think that's where Labour can get some traction. But the way George Osborne sort of handled it has been that kind of, I want my cake and eat it. He said, well, um, this shows we're still in growth and we've, we've kept us in growth, but this shows how narrow that growth is and you don't want to risk it with the other lot mm -hmm. coming in. And it, it's, it's somehow to emphasise the importance of it by showing how slim the margin is. But actually the, the, the sort of deeper issue there is what's, what's driven that even narrow growth is um, shopping and going to restaurants. Service industry. Uh, you know, it's the service mm. industry that's driven it. And and if if people get a, a false hope of a, of a return and that's the only thing that drives it, then that has that has actually got bigger implications for whoever gets in in the next yeah. round. But I, I don't think it matters to the man or woman in the street. Begs the question, why, why did the Tories come out this morning and say, we will pass a law to oh. say no increase in income tax, no VA, no increase in VAT, no increase in national insurance? 
a law that will bind them. This is this is like George Bush saying, "What read my lips, no more taxes." Yeah. You know, Keynes said, "When the facts change, my opinions change." How can Cameron or Osborne say what's going to happen if they get him? What's going to happen in three years' time? Yeah. And they might have to turn around to the, the electorate and say, "You know, we're going to raise taxes." Yeah. Well, it goes back to the point made before, and that's where I think the so-called negative campaigning is good mm. because what the Labour Party did this morning was shine a light on that. So once you put in that, essentially holding the government hostage to fortune with that triple lock on taxes, alongside a bunch of unfunded spending commitments, which are populist in nature and not very Tory-like, but sure they have a, a so-called heart, you know, it's, we're, in a, we're in a dangerous position because either the distrust of politics is going to rear its ugly head again because the Tories will have to renege on these promises or the, you know, they will be fiscally irresponsible. And they're two bad options. I think the, the challenge is to do it in a way that feels like it's understandable to to the man on the street. I'm mm. I'm here. My my representation is, as part of this panel, a, a representation of, of man on the street. Yeah. To to some degree, and I think one of the things that, you know, as as I look at the campaign, it's really difficult to to fundamentally understand what lots of these stories are about as as a just a, a regular Joe. And I, I think for me that's partly to do with the way in which the 24-hour news agenda works. Everything is important. There is an importance on, on every single piece of material that comes out of any side of the argument, in which means that actually nothing seems particularly important. I think, you know, the, the ONS figures potentially have relevance, but they have relevance actually over a very long period of time, yet they've been put into a bite-sized piece of, of content. And actually, in that com piece of concept, we don't really have a tremendous amount of relevance to, to the debate. So it, I, I think it's kind of the challenge of these kind of outside forces and this news agenda that's kind of forcing this everything. Blandification. Yeah, a, a blandification every single part of a debate to be of, of critical importance. And actually, that's not quite the case. Yeah, but what does have relevance to is, is what is happening with the, with the lack of growth. There's more people going to uh, food banks. There's more people on zero-hours contracts. And this is the relevance. I mean, these are the figures, but the actual person, the, the people behind the figures... But, you know, the, the zero-hours contracts existed under the Labour government. 80% of people who are on them actually enjoy them. So, again, you've got to go into the figures, in the figures, to get the, the meaning out of them. 80% of people on zero-hours contracts enjoy them. <laughs> Based on? Based on a survey I read. OK. You wrote or read? Read. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's conclusive. Yeah. Um, well, how can people enjoy a contract which doesn't give them pension, that doesn't give them paid holiday? It just doesn't work out. You don't enjoy it, you suffer it. Well, is this why what Chris Moody was saying there about um, there being all these kind of mishmash of, of stories and messages that come out through a campaign, is that why we have heard Labour bang on so much about zero-hours contracts? I mean, in every... Uh, television debate or media appearance, they seem to repeat the we will banish zero hours contracts message. Is that why the Conservatives are really pressing home the economy? Because in a campaign, the most successful route is to pick a single issue on which you are strong and then hammer that home at the expense of, of everything else. Is that the way to do it, Michael? Well, I think that the uh, Conservative plan for the election was set out two years ago, which is, you know, we have a long-term economic plan. And actually, when it was developed, the economic news was actually quite still very precarious. And I think, in a way, they've they sort of been um, swept past by events so that the, 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 the 
danger that they were facing is that they could have a vote, voteless recovery because people, as I was saying earlier, could feel that they were uh, able to risk a Labour government, which is going to be much more cuddly and warm and do lovely, lovely things. But, you know, we've got an hour buffer to, you know, in case they do what they always do, which is muck up the economy and then, you know, it gets uh, swept up again later. So I, I think that that, that view, uh, yes, you should have one big idea. I think personally, my criticism would be of the Conservative campaign is that they uh, have turned up the volume too much on, on fear uh, and not enough on hope. So what, what, what are they going to be doing for their second term that's relevant to me, the individual, which, uh, which is where Labour's opportunity is to say, yes, they've done all this, but what does it mean to you? And, and Labour and haven't taken it. I don't think they've taken it and run with it. I, I, I think they've I missed an opportunity they actually yeah. um, to to come out stronger and come out more positive yeah. against the rhetoric, which is quite sort of, well, don't trust them, they'll, they'll mm. screw it all up. And instead of saying... And this is where the staging factor comes in, because I think one person... She is something different. Well, yeah. And, you know, Labour, to a lesser extent than the Conservatives, and with one view on the man on the street, still have stuck to austerity. And, you know, leading economists have come out and criticised both the Conservatives and the Labour Party, saying that there are alternative ways to achieve growth. And this is probably going to negate growth in the, in the next parliamentary term. Whereas Nicola Sturge and the SNP offer something different. And as you can see in the polls in Scotland, there's an appetite for that. Well, it's, it's an appetite for it, of course there is. People are offering you, you know... Free money. Free yeah. money, you're going to take it. But, you know, that reality is that Nicola Sturgeon is not even standing for Parliament. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's say a crucial, what she wants. crucial mm. point. I, I, all those people saying, oh, I wish she was standing in the, you know, in England. She's not even, sorry, standing in Scotland. She is not going to be an MP. And, and the fact she was, you know, allowed to, uh, you know, sit alongside or stand alongside the other leaders in the debate, I, I think... If you asked, and there have been polls on this, most people think that she's going to be uh, an MP in, in Westminster yeah. after this election. But you'll have a proxy there. It's Alex Salmond. Yes, yeah. and the polls are much, much harsher about Alex Salmond, uh, and that's where the Conservatives need to be making their attack, because the English hate him a lot more than, than Nicola Sturgeon at this point in time. But Nicola Sturgeon's not standing, Alex Salmond is. Alex Salmond, if he wins... And, you know, we get the gold blimey SNP Labour pact. Well, that puts Salmon in the cabinet, and that's a nightmare for all of us. Mm. Well, I mean, they played the blinder in that Salmon's been kept away from the campaign very successfully, and Sturgeon is seen as this forerunner. As you say, Michael, I think most people well, think she's going to be an MP. If, if you want my opinion, she's a liar. Um, and I make no bones about that. She says that she wants to uh, lock the Conservatives out of Downing Street. If she did, she'd keep her bloody mouth shut because all she is doing is helping the Conservatives win because all the things she's saying doesn't need to be said now because, you know, she's winning in Scotland. The Conservatives have got nothing to lose in Scotland anyway. So all she is doing by raising the things she's raising is driving English voters to vote Conservative. So, um, and, and that leaked uh, uh, conversation with the French ambassador, yeah. I think you can see, you know, she wants a Conservative government because she believes... That will be the quickest way to get Scottish independence. So she is uh, a liar. But do you really think that anyone in England is going to base who they vote on on what Nicola Sturgeon might be doing or saying or what the SNP? Absolutely. I, I, I've got to say, I, I don't see it. I've, I've, no, I, I've not seen any evidence to say that people... The, the, the polls are showing that... The that that's a reason? And, yeah, I mean, the, the uh, feedback on, on the street, the feedback to the pollsters and the impact it's having on the UKIP vote are all being driven and that's why the Conservatives are pressing on it that's why they're doing the the uh, ads with Nicola Sturgeon being the puppet 
puppet master with uh, Ed Miliband on it because it's it's um, hitting a fear that people have that the, there will be a weak Labour administration which is uh, beholden to uh, the SNP. And it's a threat to the union. It's a big threat to the union. It should be said, though, that the, the, the flip side of this, uh, first of all, is that Nicola Sturgeon denies making the, the remarks that were in that. But, 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 but you look at the evidence of what she's been saying since. But the, the point that Nicola Sturgeon has been getting across in her campaign, they've the SNP have had a very kind of direct, simple message as well, which is if you vote for the SNP, you're giving Scotland a stronger voice in Westminster. You're giving Scotland representation in Westminster on a scale that it hasn't previously had. Is that not a, a commendable campaign tactic? Ryan, do you not think that... I mean, Michael's no. saying that, that, that she's, she's, she's lying, that uh, she can't be happy with, with uh, well, I mean, the, the, Labour? The Scottish National Party stands for one thing above everything else, and that is an independent Scotland. And that is what Nicola Sturgeon is, is working towards. And most, if not all, of um, the members of Scottish Parliament would be elected, a member of Parliament would be elected from Scotland if, if you know, the, the polls suggest that, that they're going to get the votes they do. She's in a win-win situation. The Tories get in, Scotland becomes even more entrenched in SNP. Yeah. Uh, if Labour gets in, she gets and I, to be part of the power. And I do believe Ed Miliband when he says, when he rules out coalition with the SNP, I think Labour would now, from what I understand, will go with a, a minority government. I really do believe that. But then how because long would that government last? Because well, the SNP managed it in Scotland for four years. You know, I think there would be supply and confidence, possibly. But I think there was, you know, Labour would go with minority. And be, there wouldn't be Alex Salmond in the cabinet. No way. Because they know that that would damage Labour Party for generations. We're talking about political trust here, but these are conversations that obviously will... I think that's a bit of an oxymoron. (laughs) Well, I mean, these are are issues we'll come to after the election, if indeed we do get a a hung parliament. But making some of the big, bold promises that they're making now, so some of the the pledges that the Conservatives have made today, uh, Labour's absolute uh, determination not to enter a coalition with the SNP, so they claim at this stage. I mean, these are things that the, the public are going to expect them to, uh, you know, hold up to after May the 7th. I mean... Uh, well, there's a phrase that will come out after May the 7th, for the good of the country. And they'll all do that, for the good of the country. They'll also say that uh, the situation that has arisen is as a result of the choice of the people. Mm, yeah. So we have to now go so forward, and you know. So you're going to have all of that. So we should take what they're saying now with a with a pinch of salt. A bucket. A bucket. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, let's move on to um, some of the, the sort of individuals of this campaign, and uh, many media outlets, uh, including the BBC, Telegraph, The Guardian, noted this week that David Cameron has attempted to inject some passion into his public appearances. Um, there's definitely been a noticeable change of tone and uh, change of style as well. So the shirt sleeves have been rolled up, the tie has come off, he's banging his fist. Um, Are these performances convincing, or do they look like a contrived response to criticism that his campaign has been uh, lacklustre in some people's eyes? Jane, you're a reputation expert. Tell us, uh, what do you think of the way that David Cameron's presenting himself? Well, I, I'm, I am loving that gradual striptease he's doing. He's sort of started in a suit and a tie. He's gone down to no tie, long sleeves. Now he's got his sleeves up. I'm, I'm expecting we'll see him in his vest and pants before the, um, the election. I think it's wholly unconvincing. Now, there, there is a chance that he genuinely is getting a bit bloody lively, as he said. Um, there's more of a chance that all of the, There's more of a chance that 
a, a lot of the comment in the last two weeks, if you go back and look at his interviews and look at criticism of him, he says, people say I'm too smooth. I don't look like I'm riled. I don't look like I'm putting in the hours. Well, let me assure you I'm grafting. And somebody has said to him, it's not enough to say, let me assure you I'm grafting. You have to look like you're grafting. And when people graft, they roll their sleeves up. So, so I'm told. Um, and so he sort of listened to that and said, ah, yes, look like grafting, roll up sleeves, be bloody lively. It's so transparent and it's so weak. But if you're already predisposed towards um, uh, Cameron, if you already think he is hardworking, that will just entrench your views. So I don't think it's going to change anyone's mind. Mm. It's done nothing for his reputation. And actually, I think the opposition could have made more of such a, a blatant, shallow show of, of um, kind of... Yeah, Jay. absolutely. Cameron can't do passion. I mean, it's the sort of man who sort of folds his pyjamas before having sex. I mean, it's just, you can't do passion. You can do anger. We see that at PMQs. He gets very angry and he gets very red-faced and he gets very flustered. What he can do is assurance, and he's very good at that. You know, he's a very, very bright man, and he shouldn't be doing anything that is not him. Because it comes over as false and, 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 it, and it's so transparent. I think that's what really comes through. And I think you saw that with the the West Ham. You know, he got his claret and blue mixed up when yeah. he, you know, his PR guys obviously told him to support Aston Villa for a long time. And then he says he supports West Ham last week. And it's just all a bit embarrassing. It shows a man out of touch who well, I, I, is managing I, I think that's his, quite managing minor compared to forgetting the deficit, a 20 minute part of your conference speech. I think, you know, when it comes to the big issues, but I, I, I agree actually. Well, I think, I I think got the Conservative Party, Cameron's sort of unriled uh, ex exterior is actually an asset because you go at the end of the day who do you want it to be your prime minister mm -hmm. somebody who's sort of you know coming back to this stage thing the leaders debate ed Miliband sort of swivel eyed looking at the camera actually put people off and it looked just like he'd been this is part of his media training to do this because he's going to be the guy reaching out to the individual and it was sort of but his poll ratings have gone up over the last couple of weeks whereas cameron's has flattened yeah, I think uh, I'm not, you know Ed Miliband's run a good campaign given ex where expectations were, uh, no doubt about it. But it's not it's not transforming into who'd want to be best prime minister, who would make the best prime minister, and that is actually what all of you know coming back to the planning is to frame the choice for the elector in the in the ballot box, and it's you know there can only be one of two prime ministers. Uh, Labour will definitely not get a majority. So it's either Ed Miliband with a, some sort of a, uh, alliance, or it's uh, David Cameron. It's and I think, I think in, in the ballot box, those issues about uncertainty of the economy, the uh, lack of trust in, in Labour, I think will come to play. It, it shows the, the kind of tricky role for me that the, the kind of incumbent Prime Minister has at this stage. So I completely <coughs> agree there's an element of kind of dad dancing and, you know, yeah. the... Don't tell me you're funny, make me laugh. You know, let, actually demonstrate it rather than kind of roll up the sleeves to indicate that you have, have passion running through your veins. But there's also something about the fact that as a Prime Minister who is, I suppose, technically running the country at the moment, he's also got to be responsible for the fact that on a global level, globally, most world leaders don't really want to see a tremendous amount of change. So there's, that's probably contributed a little bit to the, the behaviour of being relatively normal and being relatively passive. Um, and, I, and I think that it, it's just a little bit of a shame that sometimes the the behaviour turns into slight kind of arrogance and, a, and a, just it, it 
just drifts into something slightly different. But um, yeah, I think there is an element of, of dad at, dancing to the being. You ought to look at Angela Merkel. I mean, the way she sort of smoothly goes through and says, this is what I am, this is what you get. You either like me or you don't like me. Okay, it's a different system in, uh, in Germany where you've got the two major parties involved in a coalition, which seems very grown up to me. But uh, Angela Merkel has the right. She doesn't. She doesn't go out and 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 perform. Mm. She's Angela Merkel. She's Mutter, mm. and that's what the German people recognise in her. And and our politicians should go out and be themselves. Yes. I think there's a difference between messaging and execution. So uh, I think that Cameron did launch after the first part of the campaign, and by the time of the manifesto launch, you saw a switch to a sort of more brighter, better future, the good life, and that it you know can translate to uh, the down to the individual. And so it was a more positive set of messaging, mm. which I think was was good. Uh, I think just trying to fit him to perceive to be somebody he sorry that con conflicts with people's perceptions of him is hard to to execute. But I, I think that positive messaging was a reactive thing. I don't think the Tories ever planned that. I think the I think you're right. I, I think, think but I, I think they listened on on the hoof. And but, uh, but when, as you, when you said before that they've been planning the election campaign for two years, yeah. I think they probably had and they had a well-oiled machine ready to go, but the messaging was completely wrong, and the execution was completely wrong. And I think we've seen that falter in the last. I think years. elements of it were, and they have adjusted that. But going back to the point about uh, but, but major versus Cameron, I think uh, yes, if we do see uh, Cameron down to his uh, uh, pants and vest, I suspect the vest won't be tucked in. <laughs> Well, let's hope that we don't see that let's over the hope. next uh, seven days or so. But um, let's move on to Ed Miliband. And in his bid to win votes, uh, he this week agreed to an interview with Russell Brand, went round to Russell Brand's home late in the evening to record this interview, which uh, uh, some eagle-eyed snappers took great delight in, in capturing. Um, Russell Brand, we should say, is obviously a man who is on record as having never voted recently published a book stating his desire for a global revolution, has an obvious contempt to some degree or another for the political system. Um, so was this a, a wise move on Labour's part, Ryan, to put Ed forward for this? Most certainly. If you look at the voting from the last election, so 22 million people didn't vote, which is more than any other political party. So Russell Brand speaks to a large audience, which politics doesn't touch. I think all the people in this room, you know, we are voters, we're politically engaged with doing this podcast, but actually there's a whole host of people out there where Russell Brand connects with them in a way that no politician can. And I think good on Ed for doing a service to democracy and reaching out through those channels. You know, you're not going to be able to reach these people through the day programme, Radio 4. You've got to do things differently, you've got to do it bravely, and you've got to break convention, and that's what Ed's done in this, and that's what the Labour Party's done. Well, and I think we'll see positive, positive results from it. Well, I, I disagree with you. Uh... I think, personally, I think that Brand is a posturing, self-obsessed, know-nothing. But if someone decided this was a good thing to do, what they shouldn't have done is having Ed Miliband slinking into a house in Shoreditch late at night to, to, to do it on Brand's territory. Brand should have been seen going into Labour Party headquarters and doing it. That is prime ministerial not lurking about in Shoreditch. But I, I don't think Prime Ministerial means much to these guys who aren't voting. I think they want to hear them. You know, they're starting from such a low base in terms of interaction with engagement with politics. But, but, it, but it, means an awful, it means an awful lot to the people, the labour work, some of the work, labour working class who might want to vote UKIP this time, because Russell Brand is an anathema to them. 
and it means an awful lot of the people who... I think it's Prime Ministerial having the debate and the conversation with Russell Brand. More Prime Ministerial than not, and I think that's where Cameron well, and Kerry... You, <coughs> you have it on your territory. It was interesting, as this story broke the other day, one of the uh, male uh, journalists... Uh, resurfaced a, a piece that they'd written a few months ago about how um, it had been considered that Russell Brown would in some way support the Green Party and some of their plans and insiders from within the Greens said that Russell Brown was too toxic, uh, allegedly said that he was too toxic to be associated with. So if Russell Brown is too toxic for the Greens, uh, is he right for, for Labour? I think the, the problem is looking at Russell Brand as, a, as an individual. I think irrespective of what you think of his comedy act or what you think of his political views, what he does do is he's pulling together a group of disenfranchised people to start a conversation about politics. Um, and I agree with Ryan, it can, only, it can only be a good thing for him to be having a conversation with, with Ed Miliband. There's a million subscribers to the to the truce, and and that's a tremendous amount of people who are predominantly going to be floating voters, people who haven't made their minds up yet whether who they want to vote for, and you know David Cameron comes out and says, well I'm not going to engage with that. I'm going to engage with real people. They are real people. They're just watching and they're and just and watching TV in a different way. For Cameron, it's a quick call to you know again a Tory mm. media baron, and Labour doesn't have access to that, so. Let's go and speak to people where they, you know... Well, the, 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 point, the only person this is legitimising is, is Russell Brand. Oh, no, I, I, I've you got know, to say Where are we going to go next? A seance with all the Luddock? No, I disagree because he's, they're not seeking Russell... Well, all of us talking here have yet to see the full clip because as we record this, we, you know, we haven't seen it. So, Very inconvenient. So only time will tell about whether it was worth doing in terms of Ed Miliband's reputation. I wholeheartedly agree he shouldn't have done it the way he did, unannounced and slinking in in the middle of the night or whenever it was. Um, but... He's not seeking, as far as I know, Russell Brand's endorsement. Mm. It's Russell Brand has requested an interview, or, or, or they've sought it out, and he said, yes, you are a media figure who people listen to with huge swathes of people following you. If you want to interview me, I will not let you just say in a vacuum that all politicians are useless and no one should vote. I will come into your space and I will argue the point that they, that they don't. Uh, in no, you know, that's not a bad idea. That's a very good, positive thing to do that politicians should be doing more of. You engage with people who otherwise you're not going to get through uh, conventional media and broadsheets and, and, and the commentary out of the Westminster bubble. They're not reaching these people. So, uh, I, so think I, I, I think the way he did it was stupid and yeah. ill-thought through. Doing it, I think, was the right thing. Time will tell whether whether what it looks like is actually of value because the clip I've seen is excruciating. I don't think that uh, youth disengagement from politics is something new. I mean, if we look at 2010... Um, Almost double the number of people who are over 65 voted than those who are in the 18 to 24 age. So I think you can say in terms of where you see the political strategies, the Conservatives are you know, uh, fishing where the fish swim. And if Labour are trying to get incremental votes by uh, reaching out to the younger audience, it's going to be much harder uh, as regard as a way of doing that. And I, I do think ways to engage young people in the electoral process are really important. I personally would question whether going to somebody who, who, who's you know, completely narcissistic to the electoral process is the way to achieve that. Because 
the problem with you know you have to go to why are people disengaged, not just go to somebody. Oh, he's disengaged, so we'll talk to him to get because he can reach the people who are disengaged. That's not necessarily going to achieve. Your, it's not going to achieve. It's not going to achieve. It's not going to achieve your goal. So you, you might you might have an audience, but you're not because Russell Brand is very easy for him so to criticise yeah, what politicians do. You know, have, you know, it's really difficult in a cornerstone of democracy. It, it, I, well, what I'm saying is it's very difficult in an electoral. His dad dancing, and this is what this is this is the embarrassing uncle at the wedding, shimmying to the dance floor. I'm afraid. Well, it might all be who has a million people watching him and listen to what he's saying. But it's not going to solve their issue of why they're disengaged. That's my point. If there's a challenge, but if they're disengaged, they haven't registered to vote. We're too late. I mean, so it could be a completely academic argument. I can tell you what they could have done to. Uh, change that and, and both parties had the opportunity which is one of the reasons why uh, you know we've seen this sort of cross-dressing and oh all the parties are the same and all these sorts of things is that because the uh, impression that the public get are that the parties and the people in them are from within this Westminster bubble and so Ed Miliband is you know North London Primrose Hill yeah. two million pounds two kitchens you know it doesn't that doesn't solve the disengagement issue there was an opportunity, and there still is for the future, to uh, recast how you do politics, mm -hmm. not politics as usual. Um, and I know it's a bit early, but uh, we're working with uh, a London mayoral candidate who doesn't come from that area. So I, th I think it's going to be very interesting to see how, uh, and we'll be using not politics as usual communication to uh, put that across. And I think if we can, if we, if the parties are interested in engaging those disengaged people. They've got to change. But that's but part part of the problem is that the irrespective of how much you you want to change things, the channels I think are, are crucially important. Part of the reason why people <coughs> don't like the the Russell Brand interview is because it's not seen as a valid interview because it's not on TV or it's not for a traditional media uh, channel. And I think that part of the issue with this entire um, election campaign is that the, the digital channels, the, those channels that really do reach so many young people who, who do want to have engagement are not being used properly. They're not being truly used to have true conversation. And Russell Brand is a, is a great example of that. Irrespective of, of what you think about him, he's, he's really engaging with people in a completely new way. And in the next four years, even more of the, the conversation will happen through those channels. And after that, virtually everybody who you speak to will be digital natives anyway. So I think we, we've got to shift that mindset as well of, of what's valid and what's, and what's not as a channel. That's a really important point about, about channels and digital channels because at the moment um, you might look at how many Facebook likes the Conservatives have and say, oh, wow, that'll translate into votes. But actually what you've got to look at is, is, is the engagement, the conversations that are happening. It's not enough to have a follower or a like. It's got to then... Uh, translate into a conversation which then itself then translates into potentially canvassing and so when you do the social media stats even though the conservatives have the the highest sort of total numbers they've not got the highest engagement level of that those sit with the Lib Dems and Labour but I think I think on the Russell Brand thing uh, time will tell and, and the thing that will get him is whether it looks authentic yeah. that's the key to this it is yeah. it does this feel like an authentic genuine play to reach people or is it um, a badly thought out opportunistic. Well, the clip, it looks like a fish on a bicycle. It does, it looks, it's excruciating, <laughs> well, we'll, it's, it's difficult to watch. We'll see the, the reaction over the, the next few days, but that may go down as a, as a political masterstroke, it may go down as a gaffe, time will tell. Um, 
But just very quickly, before we finish up this week, uh, on the subject of, of gaffes, there seems to have been precious few real blunders in mm. this campaign. So we had David Cameron's football team slip up uh, the other day, and we also <coughs> had the Conservatives leaving the metadata on their letter purporting to be from uh, 5,000 small businesses, which said that it was authored at uh, uh, Conservative Central Office. Uh, we also celebrated uh, Ed Balls Day on Tuesday, of course, the day that Ed Balls memorably uh, tweeted his own name online, which seems to have grown to new extremes each year. Um, but, but there haven't been that many kind of big blunders. Are our politicians just too rehearsed, too polished to make these kinds of elementary mistakes on the campaign trail now? I think they, they, they are incredibly polished. I, I mean, to to kind of side with the politicians for once, I suppose. I, I'm, I'm kind of amazed that nobody so far has had some kind of Britney Spears head-shaving meltdown through all the <laughs> pressure of, of having to be perfect all the time. Um, the amount of pressure they're kind of put under to, to make sure they never make a mistake, it must be absolutely excruciatingly unbearable. Um, and, and to be honest, I don't mind... As an independent observer, I don't mind our politicians occasionally making mistakes. I think if you look at the most successful brands and organisations out in the world, they're the ones who can fail gracefully and, and move on. The, look at Google and the way they launched Google Glass, and it hasn't quite hit what they wanted to do, but they accept it and they move on and they develop things. I, I think it's, it's kind of a shame for the, the political elite that they have to be perfect every time and... And they are getting better at it. They're just kind of burnishing themselves to this no, ultimately bland form, what I think. Getting, what they're getting better at is lack of engagement. They're not, you know, everything Perhaps. is controlled. You know, Cameron will get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and he'll have his sheet. And so will Miliband and so will Clegg. And his sheet will tell him exactly where he's going to be, what he's going to do. And he's not going to be meeting anyone who's not one of the party followers. Uh, and you're not going to talk to the person from the mirror. And you mustn't talk to the person from the mail. Like, the cabinet... The whole of the cabinet and the prime minister are refusing to give an interview to the Observer at all before the election. <laughs> Miliband is refusing to give an interview to the Daily Mail. That might have something to do with what they said about his dad. But even so, you know, he should be above that. It is not about being polished. It's just about the fear factor of, of making gaffes. And Jane, as a communicator, you know, for a living, would you say that... Um... Lots of gaffes giving some work. <laughs> um, th that's an interesting point about the politicians in this campaign are only seeing predictable things in the journals you'd expect them to be in. And that goes to the point we talked about earlier, but people are not reaching out and trying to change minds. They're just trying to get their own voters to turn out. Um, I, I think they are more polished. Personally, I would vote for whoever said I'm banning selfie sticks from um, <laughs> from the campaign because actually that's been that's been a real feature of this campaign is the amount of selfies that they're being asked to do. So they're not having time to talk to anyone because they're too busy yeah. sort of you know putting their head gently in towards that person's head. Um, and so that I do find it a, a bit depressing because I actually think gaffes are often a sign of engagement. Mm. I do agree. Any danger of a Preza Punch or a Gillian Duffy bigoted woman yeah. moment in the last well, week we, of the we campaign? We celebrated the five year anniversary of Gillian Duffy this week which I'm surprised the Tories didn't make more about to be honest. Um, but I have to agree with the selfie stick point and even the you know the, the hen party I mean that could have been a brilliant disaster but <laughs> what, what just put me the most was seeing the pictures of Labour guys sort of organising the ladies on the hen party onto the bus beforehand you know it's all it is two stage managers for my, for my liking this one across all political parties i think there's a couple of gaffes at a local level which we've seen um ukip are full of them 
and you know they're, they're, they're the ones that been a few spelling errors on exactly. pamphlets and, and for like all that. just HIV comments that weren't great I don't think you know I think you could probably put that down as a, as a bit of a disaster for right, for right. but that was, that, was, that was preordained that was a deliberate strategy it was, that wasn't a momentary lapse that was you know that's a yeah, yeah, that, that strategic into the homophobia racist that you know the Farage has made a, one big mistake in the last few days in which he says that people are saying that UKIP is racist and he's complaining, he's whinging about it. Actually, <laughs> quite a lot of people are racist in different ways. UKIP is racist, not in a, you know, we're going to keep out all blacks or anything like that, but, you know, it's Britain for Britain. And there's quite a lot of the population who think that. So instead of whinging about it, UKIP should just keep on the message about Britain for the British. And not complain about being racist because racists are doing very well, it, thank you. It makes look at France. Part of the, look at Germany. Yeah. Let's not make that the last comment we make. <laughs> Let's not. A light-hearted chat about gaffes has moved into uh, UKIP's uh, perception. Although Nigel Farage did make the comment this week that um, he said the media has an obsession with portraying uh, UKIP as as being racist. But can the media really dictate how you? you a party is it not up to each of us individually to I, I think to giving an interview that? with Trevor Phillips and saying you know um I would I would abolish discriminatory laws and you should be able to say you know I don't want to hire a Polish person I mean Nigel Farage is sort of saying let's go back to the days you could put a poster up saying you know no blacks no dogs no Irish I think under his under his world that would be perfectly acceptable and legal to do so no I don't think he has a case if it looks like but a duck unfortunately, and it quacks, it's a duck. there's quite a lot of people who think like that Oh, and I agree, he's, and he's, he's, I agree he from a purely that. cynical point of view of, of attracting some core UK voters. Who knows, maybe that's the policy, but I don't. the main reason I don't think he can complain no, he can't is complain. because the facts speak for themselves. I don't think he can't complain, and he shouldn't complain. And just finally then, Michael, you touched on the point there about how um, Nigel Farage's comments, although they can maybe seem like gaffes, maybe a bit Alan Partridge-esque at times, um, they're actually very deliberate, aren't they? The, the fact they attacked the audience in one of the uh, TV debates for being too left-wing and attacked the BBC in the process for putting them there. Um, this is all part of his strategy, isn't it? This is what Nigel Farage <coughs> is and this is what he does. Yeah, he's the uh, I'm-not-like-them candidate and that's uh, you know where he, he, he's fishing and there are... As, uh, He's a well machine. There, there, there are there are people who um, identify with that, so he's he's doing the right thing. I think that we we briefly touched on um, other. There, there was a sort of gaffe, which is that uh, Margaret Hodge. It's just been revealed who is um, chairman of the uh, parliamentary treasury committee, council committee, council committee. Uh, council committee. Um, after all this business about bankers and tax avoidance and uh, non-doms, has got one and a half million quid stashed away in uh, Liechtenstein. I mean, I think that's a gaffe. Is that a gaffe, though, or is that just political hypocrisy? Is there a difference between the two? Well, just at the moment, it, well, it is hypocrisy, but it, but it, but it goes into the, the narrative of the election because Labour MP, million and a half pound stashed away offshore all the words you don't want to link to a Labour MP. OK. Well, I'm afraid on that note we will have to leave it there for this week because we've run out of time. Um, but our thanks go to Jungle Studios here in Soho for hosting us once again and to our panel of experts, Chris Boffey, Michael Mazinski, Ryan Wayne, Chris Moody and Jane Wilson. It's been great to have you all with us. Uh, we'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, you can follow all our ongoing election media coverage at thedrum.com forward slash election beat. And all that's left to say is thank you for listening and have a great week. Goodbye.